Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. On today's show, we'll be talking about Field Notes, a company that makes beloved memo pads and notebooks. Joining us will be co-founder and chief designer Aaron Draplin. In our conversation, Aaron Draplin will talk about the inspiration for Field Notes, about locally sourced paper and staples, and about the timeless appeal of the Futura Bold typeface. After the break, Aaron Draplin, co-founder and chief designer of Field Notes. Welcome to Who Runs That? Today we will be talking about Field Notes. And with us is Aaron Draplin, the co-founder of Field Notes. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, you guys. Yeah. All right. Go. Cool. (laughs) So what is the origin of Field Notes? First of all, we should say, for listeners who may not be familiar with Field Notes, what is Field Notes? Well, Field Notes are a little memo book brand um, out of Portland here and out of Chicago. Our main headquarters would be Chicago, um, where we do all the shipping and all the creative and just all the sort of like, um, you know, keeping this thing like a proper brand that would be out of Chicago. Um, But what it is, it's just a little memo book company I made sort of back in 2003 two, three, four, something, and, and really was just a reaction. I like to make my own little books and things and stuff. And then I went to Italy one time and bought a mountain of um, little memo books, brought them home, used a ton of them, and then said, I, can, I think I can do this on my own. And I made my own little field notes memo book. I guess that would have been the first official ones were somewhere around 2003, 2004, and then handed a... Um, uh, a stack of sort of hand screen printed ones to Jim Kudal, you know, who was a hero in Chicago. But, you know, how I got to him is Jim was a designer and an art director, you know, and like a creative director for some big agencies in and around Chicago. All for lots, of, you know, Jim's got about 10 years on me. I'm 45. Jim's got, you know, a couple years on me. And also has a vast sea of confidence and knowledge and just knows how to get things done. I knew of his work from bigger, bigger, bigger things. But what was really cool about Jim Kudal was he would say, we don't take a client unless it's going to teach us something. This isn't just about a buck. And what had you been doing before you made your your first little memo book? What had you been doing before that? And what led you to start creating these memo books? Well, I mean, all the way growing up, I always had a sketchbook. I always had, um, you know, something in my pocket to just capture ideas. My dad was a doodler, um, and I saw him always, you know, on the phone with his clients or customers, um, always using a pencil in a fun way, we'll just say. So as a graphic designer, you know, when I was coming into sort of my own in the 90s and computers were running the world for graphic design, and if you go back just 10 years before that, everything was analog. You know, here I was, I loved pen and paper, but I was sort of forced into computers just like everybody else, you know, and you sort of sink or swim, but I loved the freedom of paper, right, and and how my hands were that much more free. So, you know, to go, um, you know, to make my own, that really comes from this sort of zone where it's like the options that were sort of afforded to me either here at Powell's Books or some hipster store, you know, wherever in my travels, they were just sort of less and less cool. I loved the beauty and the simplicity of like a Muji, right? Um, or a Moleskine or something. And yet those still kind of felt, they were kind of hard to get. They were kind of these premium things. So to make my own really was just sort of, that comes from kind of like my, my growing up in skateboarding and snowboarding where, you know, we weren't really worried about who was the best looking or the coolest or the fastest. It was just about us making our own stuff. Yeah. 
What what kind of goals did you have in mind when you start selling these in a slightly more organized way? What kind of ambitions did you have? Well, really, it was just for sort of access. You know, the idea that someone could find us. My goals have been really, you know, the scary part about what I do as a cake decorator or we'll just say a graphic designer, you know, I mean, as someone who puts a skin on something, it's always been terrifying to me that something really simple with nice design can become really um, expensive and then elitist and then out of everyone's hands. Because here's the thing, when you go and you remove all that stuff out of the way and you go to a lumberyard and you go, you know, where I grew up in the Midwest, you grew I'm from Northern Michigan, you go to a lumberyard, they give you a memo book and it's just something, it's an old fashioned way to say, thanks for using our products, thanks for using our stuff, here, Make your notes on this, and every time you pick it up, it says, you know, our lumber yard with our phone number. There was something about that completely unpretentious. So my goals from the, the beginning were like, can we just keep these affordable? Because now to see our field notes sold in stores where jeans are $500, and that's weird, I'll just say, you know, I'll take a hard line on that one. That's weird. What I love about Portland, Oregon, you can have jeans that are 30 bucks. It's okay, you know, and yet we sell our books there for $9.95. And when you go down to a bait and tackle shop, they are $9.95 or a bookstore or, you know, a, a campus, you know, bookstore or something, art, art shop or something. So that's really been my goal is just to keep these things affordable and fun. And we, we've done that. Have, have you been able to make everything in the U.S.? Is that a challenge? Is that important to you? How do you go about doing that? Um, tell me a little bit about your, your sourcing and manufacturing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have to understand, like I, um, as a kid, I watched my dad and his business. He was an industrial tool salesman. And he would just sort of say, like, here, here's a deal. All this stuff is being sent far and farther away, and that's just business, Aaron. And that's it was a lesson in sort of global economics when I was, what, 15 or 16 years old. I mean, I was watching him slow down. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It becomes this sort of weird thing where, like, if we can't compete, well, that's kind of on us. And, you know, to go and make these things, to go to a lumberyard, to go to a feed and seed store and see that these things were being printed two blocks away at the one tiny little printer in town. That's something that was very special and very real and very honest. I'll never forget one of the calls that I got <clears throat> after we made our first pile and we started to get a little bit of media attention and people started to sell them and they were, you know, out and about and people, you know, they were kind of these fun things, kind of hard to get. This would have been 2007 or so. But I spoke to a printer from Taiwan and we could have got them for like something like eight or nine cents on the, on, on the buck or I don't remember what it was. But it was just really kind of fun to me to be able to say, thank you so much for calling, but we're cool with where we're at. We do okay. And we get to work with our friends. And I would, I, you know, I'm not saying it's bad to go make them in Taiwan because the sweatshirt I'm wearing, I'm sure it was made there. But in this one instance, can we make, you know, a simple little memo book with our friends? Yes, we can. You know, could we make more and more? It's never, it's never been about that. It's about the idea that, like, if we can't find a memo book made in our back, that's just kind of weird, you know? Because, I mean, I've just had my heart broken too many times growing up trying to get a pair of cool socks made. Sorry, kid, they sold the looms back in 84. I mean, I remember that quote, you know, and it's like, well, you can't make socks here anymore? Hmm. So your part, the, the parts here are like paper, staples, slightly thicker paper, I guess you'd call it cardstock. Like, what? what what kind of things are you sourcing here? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, when, when you go 
and you get paper. You know, paper mills are all over the nation, and they're sometimes they're in, they're, they're they're really doing well. Some like right now, there's a bit of you know it's been kind of tricky. But my favorite paper company is a place called French Paper in Niles, Michigan. And they are six and seven generations into this thing. Um, now the kids are taking it over. Um, Brian and Kim, you know, from old man Jerry, we'll just say, which was, I think he was, you know, sixth generation or something or fifth generation. But the idea that this little paper mill in Niles, Michigan can, can exist and make such cool stuff, I want to support that. I want that to keep going. I mean, I don't think there's really all that big of gains in paper or making these things, but the idea that we go and we uh, we support those guys that means a lot to me, you know. And all the way down to like, you know, now we get to pick all these different finishes on the staples and stuff. I would have been cool with just silver staples, but you know, Brian Bedell he went and found these you know sources and suppliers that are in our backyards, you know. And it's sort of a metaphor now when I go to make a pen or a pencil or something simple, I will exhaust myself trying to find that little place in Tennessee that makes one of the last, you know, sort of family owned and operated pencil factories, you know, makes pencils because they're out there. You might have to pay a little more, but it's pretty cool. You know, the service is great and the story is great and they're always awesome. So, you know, that's, that's something that we're, you know, we try to champion with this thing and, you know, details matter. So, I mean, there's no shortage of like memo pads and little notebooks on the market. I can go to the drugstore around the corner and get one right now, but you've got one where people are buying subscriptions to get shipments of them every quarter. And there's this whole cult around fieldness for listeners who aren't aware. I've, I've done some research. And I can assure you there is like a cult around field notes. Why do you think your memo pads and notebooks have like resonated with people in this way that, you know, a drugstore memo pad, a drugstore notebook doesn't? Well, I mean, like anything... Um, you know, I, I love like when my aunt or uncle or someone says, oh, I, I, I didn't have any more field notes. I had to go to the drugstore. It's like, that's just, that's cool to me. Where do people go and buy paper? You know, are people even using paper anymore? So for us, you know, this is the thing that's like for my profession and what I do, I make logos. I make, you know, as a graphic designer, I start on paper. I need paper. That thing is always attached to my, you know, right above my heart in a pocket because, I have to keep my life organized that way. So the idea that, you know, for me, it's necessity, you know, and then for someone else, like, I think what they like about our brand, I would hope what they like about it is when they sort of do a deep dive. Number one, the stuff's affordable. Number two, they're always being surprised. But beyond that, we're unlocking doors for people, you know, they're finding themselves again, be it their voices, be it like, you know, people who are like into poetry. I mean, we have people who go through the books Every three and four days, they've unlocked something in themselves and they're going through these things at a clip. I mean, it takes me about three, three and a half weeks to go through a, you know, a 48 page memo book. And that's me taking notes, leaving, you know, doing sketches. Sometimes on an airplane, I'll go through a whole book in two hours. But, you know, the idea that people are finding this refreshing quality of analog in an iPhone world, I know they are. I know they are because there is... You know, this morning when I went to get my tires rotated on my van, I took down all the numbers this guy was spewing in my notes because if I'm going to go do a competitive little research when I jump out of there, you know, I've got my numbers right there. I could have tried to capture it with my phone. It's just not the same. It's just not the same. He didn't even know I was taking the numbers down. I just started to sketch these things out, you know, and it's like, you know, your phone. I mean, here's the thing. Making a grocery list. 
if you take a piece of scratch paper and you make your grocery list, you're having to think and you will make a better grocery list. It's just not the same in an app. Not yet. Not yet. So in terms of aesthetics, when I look at these field, I've got a couple of field notes. I've got a memo pad and reporter's notebook in front of me. And I see what I believe to be the Futura Bold typeface. And that what that typeface, when I look at and I look at this item, I think of a sort of a Wes Anderson-y aesthetic, like a character in a Wes Anderson movie would carry this memo pad to take notes in. Does that bother you? Is that okay with you? How would you describe no, the no, aesthetic? No, 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 no. Okay. As a big fan of Wes Anderson, let's get real clear on something. Wes Anderson's looking at the same little folders and files and little how-tos in his grandpa's garage just like I was, you know what I mean, to come up with that kind of clean, uh, Spartan, kind of no-bullshit kind of look and feel. Here's the thing. When I was a little boy, my dad would explain to me, like, you know, what this ration can is, you know, your grandpa may or may not have used these ration cans when he went to, you know, World War II. And check it out. Like, look at the type, how it's just, it's just perfectly, it just does its job perfect. So, you know, this is something where like, you know, old signs and old things. Here's what, you know, what I think Wes Anderson is picking up on. And definitely, what you know, as a nerd myself, um, it's just the idea of like a complete lack of pretension. And yet now we have to defend ourselves that this stuff becomes like some kind of movie prop. But here's the thing. When you go back to, I mean, right now, it's today is, uh, what day? We had Monday. So over the weekend, there were estate sales. You go to an estate sale and you go into the guy's garage or whatever, and you go digging around. And if he's got a lawnmower there and it's old enough, you're going to find the little how-to thing. Uh, 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 and if it's from 1975, nine out of 10 times, that entire little how-to manual, it is set in Futura Bold, or even what they might call Spartan, because the stuff just simply works. That's all it's meant to do. It's just meant to be, you know, effective communication. And that to me is so much more beautiful than, you know, I mean, here comes an F word, fashion, for the sake of, you know, frivolity or, or, or being ironic or being new or being retro futuristic or futuristic. I like things that work and I like things that just are comfortable, you know, and it's, it's not necessarily retro to me. It's more like that's all this really needs to be. It's a study in using one typeface effectively. So I, my personal favorite dimension of notebook is the reporter's notebook. Cause when I go out and I cover an event as a journalist, it's, yeah. it's, it's these long skinny notebooks that I can fit in my back pocket and they they flip at the top so it's easy to get to the next page. I'm left-handed so there's nothing sort of in my way on the left uh, side of the book. Best-handed, so, best-handed. Yep. Yeah, so 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 the, I and it makes me wonder because this is like a very specific notebook dimension that works for these specific kinds of activities. Are there have you encountered any other sort of like very specifically directed notebook activities where people need a very certain kind of notebook for it? I think, you know, when we did that reporter's book, that was really cool because, you know, that's actually working with like some real people that are like, you know, talking to, you know, like presidents and stuff. And the idea that we can get to those guys, you know, there used to be like in Portland here, there is this like legal um, supply place. It's right down by the courthouse and you go across the street and what? That's where lawyers go, but they have cool, every kind of legal pad you'd ever want, every kind of pen and pencil and a ton of little memo books. I don't know if our stuff's carried in there, but I just love going in there because it's a reminder of all the weird places that you need stuff. All the stuff that has the little carbon copies for like, if you're you know making an invoice or taking down an order, you know, every time, every single time when I go to like some of these cool restaurants in Portland, 
I always bring a stack of field notes because I'll give it to our, you know, our waiter or waitress and say, hey, you know, play with these, use these. I see you're just using a piece of paper. And one time a guy said to me, he was like, I don't need that. I, when I'm done with the order, that then gets recycled, you know, and it was just kind of like, oh, that's cool. I mean, that, that's their deal. But I, I mean, on, on another level, we've had a lot of people come to us with really specific asks for how to use our memo books, be it storyboard people who want that sort of like, you know, that whatever that dimension is for like a movie screen because they want to sketch, you know, what that scene is going to look like for a commercial or was an ornithologist. Is that birds, birders, mm-hmm. yeah. all those people, man. Well, they have built us <clears throat> some beautiful little formatting for that kind of stuff. And that is so cool. And to the point where one guy, frustrated you know he thought he could just bring it to me at my shop knock on the door and say make these and i said well i have to go to gym and i have to go do this so what he did frustrated he just printed his little pages out puts them in his field notes finds his birds does his stuff and then you know like that's his solution it's a bit of a hack and i I just always think about well are there other people out there you know that are using our books that way that's pretty cool so are there any brands in, in other industries, other types of industries that you see as sort of kindred spirits, you know, who, the, the value of the brand is something you appreciate? Oh, my God. Where do you start? I mean, there's, there's so many. I mean, oh, how about this? Ikea. I love going to Ikea because that becomes a bad word out here. Like if I have furniture buddies who are into, you know, like seriously, these are the people that will like crouch in your home to see underneath your chair to see if it's like the knockoff or they're like, who are these people? But the moment they see that I have some Ikea, they will comment on it and say, oh, you know, Ikea, come on, drap. Like I did something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. What I love about Ikea, it is a democratization of, of just design, of right angles, of clean, modern thinking, of compartmentalized, you know, well thought out little pieces and uses of space. That's something that used to be a premium thing that you'd have to like go all the way to Finland and special order and then have to this say now 1990 or something 2000 even and then you have to wait for that thing to be you know shipped all the way from Italy which is really 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 smart beautiful design furniture and stuff the idea that a kid in a dorm room can go to IKEA to this afternoon load it up get it back in his car to his dorm room and have his you know have his dorm room solved that is really really cool to me because you know 20 years ago I would ha- I, we went to thrift stores and stuff to find our stuff. And the idea that, you know, you can go get nice, right, clean, modern angles, I don't know. That's really cool. I mean, I just love that. I, I'd hope there's, there's some of that in our brand. Do you remember what, what first drew you to doing design? Maybe like the, one of the first things you designed and felt like, oh, I'm a, I'm a designer. Um, I think it was Legos. The idea to be creative and make your own stuff. I owe a lot of my lifeblood to Lego boxes. Those are the first things when I was a little boy, 78, 80, 82. They felt so special. My parents didn't, we didn't have a lot. I never really knew this, you know. I kind of hear about it now. But it's like we never knew we didn't have a lot. We had mom and dad. I had sisters. um, You know, pizza Fridays and shit. And I had Legos. We weren't allowed video games. We had Legos and colored pencils and stuff. And those Lego boxes alone felt so special and premium because what they looked like, the Lego boxes looked like once a year, my mom and dad would splurge and buy like stuff from Dansk, 
you know, which wasn't all that removed from like Noel and, you know, Vignelli and all these sorts of like, you know, Massimo Vignelli and all these cartel kind of guys and stuff, these big furniture designers at the time. Dansk was something my mom and dad could splurge and get really cool, modern, crisp little cups and cookware and then sprinkle that through our house. We couldn't afford all of it, but I remember the packaging on that stuff and it always felt special. Like my dad loved that stuff. And he would explain to me like this, Aaron, this comes, you know, all the way from Denmark, you know, and, you know, I had never left, you know, my, I mean, maybe gone to Detroit or something at that point, eight or nine years old. And, you know, all these years later, you know, I mean, I, I try to think of the first couple times I actually, you know, where I really got the bug with graphic design. It's like it was in college, but it was more about this sort of dance of like I got to see the just the tiny little bit of where people were going to really elevate art and culture and design. And I realized quickly, mm, I might not get that whole shot, but what I love about graphic design I could get that buzz and go and make newspapers where people always needed those things. So there was something very pragmatic about it. And that captured me right out of the gates because it, it was still, of course, completely artistic. But yeah, it just sort of goes back to the couple little instances I had when I was a kid and then always remembering the beauty of just the simplest, you know, cyan, uh, 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 black Helvetica, on a yellow background, on a Lego box, beautiful. And how that can work when I, in 1978, when I got those first little star, you know, you know, space sets from Lego, all the way up to 2018, it still feels really, really beautiful. You know, there's lessons there. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Aaron Draplin, co-founder and chief designer of Field Notes. All right, let's move on to our lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Have you read any books or watched any movies that kind of inform how you function within an organization or how you manage your professional relationships with people? Shawshank Redemption. How so? I'm going to ask what you to elaborate lightning on lightning round. round is how quick... so? What kind of lightning round is <laughs> I know, how I'm so? Why can't you guys just take <laughs> Please elaborate. Well, it's interesting. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. You know, what I love about Shawshank is humanity, time, patience, creativity, integrity. There's so many lessons there. You know, the payoff at the end, D diversity. I love that because they take care of all the, you know what I mean? The big people, the little people, that little group of guys. There's so many lessons within Shawshank. And I just love that movie. And you know what? The bigger, the badder, the meaner, it always gets them back in the end. You know, there's something about that. So, you know, how would we apply that to what we do at Field Notes or my life? I don't know. I want to live. I want to laugh. I want to take care of the little guy. You know, like I love our customer service at Field Notes. We take care of, I mean, if you have anything wrong, we got you. We got you, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, that's what comes to mind. Shawshank. All right, keep going. Okay, good. Next question. Meetings. Are you pro or con meetings? How do you hold meetings? Con. I don't know. I just, I'm just tired of meetings about meetings. Here's what I, okay. I, you guys, I, I know I'm on the world's biggest podcast right now. Thank you for letting me <laughs> stink it up. Thank you. But I just missed a call at 11 o'clock because we're already in overtime because I always talk too much. So I'm sorry. So thank you for having me. But that call, there must have been 20 notifications, emails, 
hey, can we talk at 11 o'clock on Monday the 11th kind of bullshits or whatever it was, like just kind of embarrassing. And I got in trouble with that guy because I just called him last week. I just called him on the phone. I got his, um, like an assistant. And she was kind of like a little off put, like, well, why are you calling? And I said, because I have a phone. You know, I can't just call him up. He gave me his number. And that is a larger, that's a larger, larger cultural thing now that like, seriously, 20 notifications just for us. And I just missed it. So now I'm the jerk because I missed it. But what I'm getting at is I'm going to get on the phone with him in like 10 minutes here. And I'm just going to say, you guys, I'm so sorry. I tried to call you last week. I tried to just make it right and just call you right back. I got the email and I just, called, I just thought I'd call you back like a human being. Next. What mistake have you made <laughs> no. in the past that you've learned the most from? Taxes. Paying them? Like that was a mistake? Oh, what do you mean? Man, I just I had a I had a failure to file one year oh, I see. because I thought the guy because I thought the guy sent me my little packet saying, Okay, we got your extension filled, you know, filed and you're cool. And when you come back, we'll we'll fill in this, we'll fill in that, and we'll do it you know in September like we always do. And when I opened up the packet in September, my little letter said Aaron, I'm retiring. <laughs> and then I had a failure to file. And that year, my penalty, I could have bought my mom a good used car. There you well, go. And the lesson learned was, was Do what? your taxes. Okay. Do your taxes. <laughs> good. Do good. them. Well, right. I mean, just don't screw around with that stuff. I just was going, I mean, I'm always going too fast. And I was going a little too fast that year. And I assumed and I got in trouble. And I didn't get in trouble. It's not like there's no, there's nothing creepy, you know, audits or anything like, you know, there's no, you know. Failure to file. Be really careful with that stuff. If you have, you know, listen, I know hard scrabble guys here, even in Portland, they don't pay any taxes ever. Must be nice. Where I'm from in the Midwest, we are hardwired to worry and we're hardwired to be good little citizens. We don't get to mess around with that shit. And the one year I screwed up, I'll never forget it. But I get my stuff in by April every year now. And, you know, I own it. <laughs> All right. Final question. If I told you tomorrow, you are fired as a designer. You can never design anything ever again or do anything remotely related to what you're doing with your career, your life right now. What would you want to do instead with your life? Well, what's the old adage? If you can't be a graphic designer, there's always podcast interviewing. That's a little joke. That's a little <laughs> joke. No, no, I don't know. I, I'd like to build homes. I think I'd like to, I still would like to go build homes because the thing is, is like, it's creative how do you tell when a contractor's lying? They're, you can see, you just you know, their lips are moving, you know all that kind of stuff. It's like I just built this studio in my backyard, and my a, a friend of mine built it for me, and I I loved him all these years. And there's some tears and some ups and some downs, but he built me a studio with beautiful right edges and all kinds of little nooks and crannies. And every time I had a request, it might add another whatever, but he met it. And there was something very modular and really cool and really human about that. Like, this is just so I can work in here. So to answer that, you know, I would love to be, you know, to either design homes or help build them and, and, and get dirty with it. You know, what I love so much about my buddy Robbie was, yeah, he'd help me solve whatever the problem was. And then I'd watch him carry the stuff in, make the cuts and solve it. Like, there's just something that I, that's why I love paper. I, I do feel I'm a little closer to, like, you know, that creative process that I'm coming up with something, you know, in a, a little more visceral sense, like I'm screwing up on paper and it's okay. You know, I mean, like in the world of notifications and, you know, finger swipes and emails and stuff, that stuff does become sort of like, um, um, 
like kind of ghosty and like you, you can just kind of let it go. There's something about the paper that feels real to me. And and yeah, so the answer in a long-winded way, it's like I'd want to go do something that helps a human like a, in a little more of a like um like maybe it's just I don't even know how to say it. It's like, you know, like instead of like spending my time chasing paychecks for logos and stuff, maybe it's just like be like an Uber driver because you really are helping people get around. It's like so immediate, you know, or something. Like every time I get into the Ubers, I always thank those guys like Thanks, man. This thing like really cabbies, whatever. You made my life easier today. Thank you. You know, they're just tiny little interactions, but it would be a little something more like that, like smaller interactions that you can really, you know, blast a lot and meet a lot of different kinds of people, something like that. But yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, build homes or design homes or be a contractor. Um, but, but just for bonus round, I would love, I would love to, uh, you know, make something for Lego. Make, not even make like a Lego set, just make logos that get pad printed on the bricks. Does that make sense? Like the little tiny ones? That's what I'd like sure. to do. Just be a graphic designer. And I've, I've been there. I've, I've spoken at Lego and, you know, Enfield or whatever it was, Connecticut there. I've been there. I've been right into the source. And I got to tell you, I got in too deep. I saw how the sausage was made. It messed with me for a couple years until, until all that new Arctic Lego series came out. And I was cool after that. So, okay. Yeah. All right, Aaron Draplin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, man, thank you for all this. Sorry for talking too long. Bill me. Thank you for giving me a shot. To all the good people of Slate, thank you for the, being freedom fighters and, and making cool stuff. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews and Cleo Levin. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director for Slate Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.